Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. From the award-winning creative team behind Notes on Blindness and Listen to Me, Marlon, comes a contemporary take on cinema's most iconic figure, combining unheard audio recordings, dramatic reconstructions, and personal archives. The real Charlie Chaplin traces Charlie Chaplin's meteoric rise from the slums of Victorian London to the heights of Hollywood superstardom before his scandalous fall from grace. I'm going to leave it there because we're going to we have a lot to talk about and truly one of the the foundational members of of cinema as we know it and uh an amazing and fascinating man in many different ways again the film is called the real charlie chaplin and once again the writer directors of that film peter middleton and james spinney to both of you welcome to film school radio thank you so much for having us thanks mike yeah, gosh, I mean, it's hard to pick out more than one or two other people if you're going to talk about, especially the early days of, of, of cinema, uh, that would, would place higher on that list than Charlie Chaplin. I'm very curious because he's sort of one of those figures that we think we know because we he's been in the ether for his forever, for 100 years. What inspired you to want to do this particular documentary? I don't, and I always ask that kind of question. I never know who to ask first about. Is it you, Peter, or you, James? Who would, who should I ask that question? Well, we don't. We never know who's going to answer either. So, um, <laughs> I mean, that, that you, for us, you've put uh, your uh, you put your finger on exactly the thing that attracted to us. It's the sense that everyone has an image of Charlie Chaplin in, in their heads, you know, um, for as long as I can remember, if, if I heard that name, I'd imagine this figure in um, in the hat, the cane, the boots and the moustache, long before I'd seen a Charlie Chaplin film. Um, and that, in a sense, is a shadow of the fame that he experienced during his lifetime, and particularly in the, in the first half of the 20th century, when he was famous in a way that no one had been before, in a way that hadn't been possible before that, that time that he, that he walked onto the screen. You know, when he walks on screen in, in 1914, films are just starting to spread, um, across the globe, and um, and by 1916, he's 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 he, hundreds of millions of people are regularly watching Chaplin films, um, and of course because they're silent, uh, they they cross cultural boundaries, they cross language. You've got people from all walks of life watching films together um, in cinemas across the world. Um, and that sense that that he's that everyone has this idea of him and that people fell in love with him in a way that hadn't been possible before films came along, but at the same time, who was he really? Um, which in Chaplin's case, the closer we looked, the more we found him to be an incredibly el- elusive character. And it seemed like even the people who knew him best found that um, that he was always performing, that he was always on show, that he didn't want people to know the real Charlie. So in a way, this title, the real Charlie Chaplin was kind of more of a, I think, um, a challenge, but also a reflection of the fact that um, the more the more we look, the more versions of Chaplin we found. They, they kept springing up. And in fact, we begin the film with um, with a montage of, of different Chaplin imitators and imposters and impersonators, you know, people at fancy dress, people who are kind of professional rip-off artists, this guy called who called himself Charles Applin, who was a Mexican actor who, um, who was a Chaplin rip-off. Um, and this this kind of explosion that's happening um, of what was called Charlie mania, um, Chaplinitis, um, the Chaplin craze, you know, long before Beatlemania. Um, and that sense of, of him being famous and a celebrity in a way that hadn't been possible before film came along, but also this incredibly complex and elusive figure. 
in real life. Well, Peter, there's so much has been written about him. Where do you start to tell a story like this? Where do you go back to, or how do you how do you start to pull on that thread? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, there is so much. Oh, there's so much fabulous scholarship on on Chaplin. So many wonderful documentaries that have that have been made, and we were very conscious, and in, in a way, I suppose, slightly intimidated by by this standing at the foot of the mountain, looking up. You know, how do you approach a, a quote unquote great life like Chaplin's? And um, we didn't really have any <laughs> any fixed ideas when we started out. We were very fortunate to work with 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 the Chaplin. The Chaplin estate gave us full access to to Chaplin's personal and creative archive, and our producers gave us a lot of freedom um, in terms of in terms of how we wanted to approach the film but it's a difficult thing to tell that kind of cradle to to grave story and to try and map anyone's life really into um into a two-hour film let alone you know what is biographer called the greatest uh, rags to riches story of all time but for us um, we were particularly drawn to the idea of trying to find first-person accounts, people who could speak to a particular period of his life with authenticity, I suppose. So we were kind of, we didn't really want to have, you know, talking heads with Robert Downey Jr., you know, not that he would have done it with, uh, interviewed for us probably, but you know what I mean? We wanted <laughs> yeah. to find people who would um, yeah. who, who could speak uh, with authenticity to Chaplin uh, and his experience in his life. And, and that's what led us, well, obviously finding it in his own voice in this 1966 um, Chaplin, the quote-unquote authored version. And my, my version is the most authentic, Chaplin says. And of course, the the sort of the 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 counterweight to that this 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 audio uh, interview that we found with his childhood friend uh, Effie Wisdom who yeah. who speaks with such kind of immediacy and and a real real kind of sense of character and place from uh, almost speaking to you from the eighteen nineties ways of trying to access these periods of Chaplin's life and people who could speak to them at, at a remove but as, as as much as possible as sort of um, in in relation to to that period which is why we also want to end the film with with his family um you know the people who were closest to him and lived with him out in Switzerland for the last 25 years yeah and what's terrific about Effie is uh you know she knew him she knew I hate to say as much as anyone else and would have known him but she knew him in his formative years and how important those were to him because we see him telegraph a lot of things about himself in his work and particularly in relation to damsels in distress. I think that always, in back in the early days of cinema, that was a pretty common theme, but there's something very poignant about the way he, the people in his work are, it's a different kind of peril that they're in and it's more, much more relatable. And it's also much more of the times. And, and I think it's important to kind of talk about his mom and, and how important I, I believe she would have been in his life, and you can help me, James, excuse me, James, on that in terms of what happened to her and how what kind of a bearing that had on on Charlie Chaplin. Absolutely. I mean, again, you've put your finger on I think something that's such a key relationship in in Chaplin's life, um, his his relationship with his mother. You know, his his father was a music hall performer who was also an alcoholic and who, who died when Charlie was just thirteen. So his 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 real parent was his mother, um, and she he he says that he. He learned everything he knew from her, that she was this extraordinary mimic. She was a musical performer and a singer herself. Um, and she had this incredible ability to, to be able to imitate anybody. Um, and it's it's her that Chaplin says um, taught him this, this gift, which we see so often in, in, in Chaplin's films, like The Tramp as a character. Walter Kerr says, the, the film critic Walter Kerr says that the secret to The Tramp is that he can be anybody. 
you know, and he's constantly morphing. And um, when he's when he's around somebody, he changes his whole aura and his way of being. And he'll he can be anyone and anything. He'll become objects. He'll become you know um, a clockwork thing, or suddenly he'll uh, he'll morph into something else and become a ballet dancer or you know a fireman or or anything. Um, and Chaplin says that he learned all this from his mother, but. Um, his mother suffered from um, mental health uh, difficulties, and she was in fact taken to the asylum when Chaplin was um, was just was just a child. And that moment of separation from her, he kind of recreates in his film *The Kid*, when we see the ha- the arms of Jackie Coogan outstretched as he's taken away from the tramp. And in a way, you could possibly read that that moment in *The Kid* as as a sort of um, a wish fulfillment process that the tramp can rescue Jackie Coogan, the kid, um, in a way that I think he couldn't have a reconciliation with his mother um, because of that separation that they had. He had very little schooling. He had very little formal education. So he really was was kind of fighting on the streets of London. And, and as you say, Effie is able to speak to that in a way that I think few other things that we found could. You know, she she says he talked like me and she speaks in this glorious um, South London Cockney accent. Um, so as you say, I think she knew him in a way that, um, because as soon as he becomes to, goes to America, you know, um, Stan Laurel talks about how he had this air which a lot of people mistook for arrogance. Um, but actually, I think it was intense shyness. Um, at least that's what Stan Laurel thought. He th- Stan Laurel said he was incredibly shy. They were roommates, um, actually, on their on their tour of America. They went over on the boat together in the early 1910s and toured America. And he was this incredibly shy figure, but who um, who seemed to adopt airs that annoyed people, and they they assumed he was that he was pretentious or pompous. Um, and it's interesting that his voice quickly changes. And by the time he comes back to London in 1921, when he sees Effie again, she says to him, you've turned posh. Um, and uh, he says, yeah, well, I had elocution classes, they made me. So this sense that, that Effie kind of is able to cut him down to the quick, you know, she says, you haven't grown much um, when they meet again in 1921. And by that point, of course, their lives have diverged in a way that is kind of unimaginable. You know, when Chaplin was in the orphanage, he dreamed of becoming rich and famous and, and a successful actor. And he became rich and famous in a way that he couldn't have he couldn't have conceived when he was in the orphanage because that technology didn't exist. The type of fame didn't exist. So when he when he returns in 1921 in this in this entirely different category, it's and then of course they meet again in 1972, 77, 77. Uh, well, uh, sorry, it's going to date. It's right. It's seven. Yeah, seven. Well, some close to 75 when he's knighted. When he's knighted. Yeah. yeah, he comes back to London final time, and at that point, there's something very tender because um, they're kind of reunited, um, and she says to him, "Ah, oh, well, we're all getting on now, Charlie, aren't we?" And there's a sense that for all their lives are diverged, they're kind of meeting again, and also kind of. Uh, yeah, there's a kind of tenderness in that in that exchange. I think. Yeah. Uh, at the risk of being an amateur psychologist, I those airs that you're describing, I would imagine are just him being very guarded. Mm. Not entirely. I don't think that entirely explains it, but I can imagine him to be a very guarded individual, and someone who was suspicious of of many people around him. But I think when you grow up in the kind of poverty. And you're separated from your parent, and one of your parents is a distant relationship in your life. How can you not be very guarded, Peter? Mm-hmm. I mean, does that sound is that fair? I think that that again that that absolutely uh, chimes with with 
with with what we found spending time looking into into Chapman's life and speaking especially to to his children, several of whom refer exactly to that. You know, his daughter Geraldine described him as a very damaged man, you know, and 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 talked about this, um, talked very eloquently about the kind of insecurity, this man who is racked with insecurity, who who never really felt comfortable in with this extraordinary fame and wealth that he found himself in living in in his uh, palatial estate in, in in Switzerland. And uh, and of course in our film we have a a very um very moving and poignant uh, reflection from from his daughter Jane who who again sort of talks about this this doubt this idea that you know he he never really escaped that boy that childhood in London you know that he was always racked with insecurity and doubt um and living in fear of of poverty actually of being dragged back into that cell so a certain kind of disconnect I think that must have played Chapman it's the extraordinary height of that fame and that journey he'd been on from from that little boy in the workhouse in London is just uh, must 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 leave someone must leave you very confused, very damaged, and I don't think he ever really escaped that. Yeah, and I think this for us there's sort of a fairy tale quality to the fact that you know the character that makes him famous and rich in a way that w- w- wouldn't have been conceivable to him is this character who's perpetually a nobody um, who has no name. We don't know where he's from. He's sort of constantly um, being thrust out of employment, sort of put back onto the streets, and who, in a way, also rejects, I think, employment in any kind of system. He, he's sort of too slippery and fluid a character to, to belong anywhere, really. You know, and he, he plays around with gender and sexuality, and he's kind of constantly fluid. And I, I guess that's a key part of his appeal. But this sense that you know, at the end of one Chaplin f- um, film, you know, the tramp might wander off into the distance in a in a big fur coat, like he does at the end of the Gold Rush. But you know that at the beginning the next film he'll he'll walk towards us from from a distance and he'll just be the tramp again he'll be he'll be back to square one he'll be a nobody and and also he's built into this character the humiliations and and the traumas of his childhood you know you can't escape gags about hunger um, in Chapman films. They come up time and time again. And also humiliation, which Chapman talks about in the Richard Merriman interview that we have in the film and also in his autobiography. He really felt the humiliations of poverty in his youth. You know, he talks a lot about certain clothes that he wore. So then for him to invent this iconic, famous character that almost prevents him from ever being dignified. You know, he says about the tramp, um, he wants to be dignified, but his shoes won't let him. That's kind of the key to the whole of the Tramp character. And so on a sort of Freudian level as well, he's kind of always putting himself back in that position. And it's interesting that on a kind of cosmic level that then that leads him to, you know, there's a kind of almost picture of Dorian Gray quality to the whole thing, that by playing this this nobody, this nameless figure, it makes him a somebody who's recognised all, all the world over. We're speaking with Peter Middleton and James Spinney, the directors, co-directors of the film, the real Charlie Chaplin. And there is something that is said in the film, I believe he's, well, he would have said it. And that is that they're in love with the tramp. They don't really, they're not really in love with me. And I, I really think that it, it's, you know, it's one thing that he came along at the right time when this particular technology, this particular art form was taking off. And as you described it being a worldwide phenomena, but there were a lot of people in that era that were relatively successful that did well. I mean, you can look at Laurel and Hardy and Lloyd, um, Howard, Howard Lloyd. Lloyd, thank you, and, and Buster Keaton. But there was something about the character that he created and something about the interaction with other people in his life. Mm. It was he could it, literally in the in the span of a few seconds, he could go from great comedic pathos to very dramatic and empathetic pathos in a matter of 
a, a gesture or some or or two and be completely a different dynamic that you would bring to bear in that in that in those moments and that is that's a gift but it's also something that feels very intuitive to his life experience you know the shifting of one way of thinking or one way of uh, that particular moment into the next absolutely he talks in his autobiography about how um there was on his street there was a um an abattoir in fact hold on I, i'm gonna mangle this story so I'll, I'll row back from that one i can't i can't remember the exact detail but this um this this combination of comedy and um uh, and pathos is so central to his work and it's an innovation that you really see in the kids, you know, as we were talking about earlier, yeah. where the whole the whole film rests on this very tender relationship, but but the the climax of the film is is a moment of separation, which is so extraordinarily heartbreaking. And Jackie Coogan said about the the making of the film that as as Chaplin was directing it, he was crying um, as he was as he was directing Jackie Coogan, being separated from the tramp, and the sequence kind of constantly is shifting on that knife edge as you say you know he'll be kicking a policeman but also the outrage on his face and the 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 hurt and trauma on his face is is so evident and it's actually something that can be traced back to his time in music hall actually you know we're talking to you now from south london and we're just a few streets from where um where chapman actually trained in music hall with with fred carno and stan laurel said that fred carno's great um recurring phrase was keep it wistful Keep it wistful. Yeah. Um, and so you'd say, even if, you know, you're doing the silliest pratfall, you know, try and put something in it that's serious. Um, and then, you know, we've talked about dignity and humiliation. Um, it seems like Chaplin's always playing with oppositions and always playing with fluidity and always, and, 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 and the world is kind of always out of balance with him. And he's, he's sort of dancing, I think, at times in, his, in, in those sequences, dancing with the environment around him and everything becomes kind of fluid and porous. And it's, it's, it really is an extraordinary thing. And I think few performers since then have, have had that particular alchemy that he, that yeah. he was able to channel. And then, of it, course, there's, there's the look, there's that, that, that it, sense it, of breaking the fourth wall and communing with the audience, which really brings us in, into his world and, and, and forges a really strong connection. And I, I don't think audiences, you know, he, he wasn't, almost certainly wasn't the first uh, performer to, to, to break the fourth wall in that way, but the way that Chaplin does it um, really is has a certain magnetism that I think still abides, you know, 100 years yeah. on. It's a powerful way to communicate with an audience and not often done and not often done beyond that to the degree of success that he was able to, to deploy in his work. Well, it's a terrific documentary film. It really, truly is uh, the real Charlie Chaplin. It'll be uh, premiering on Showtime on December 11th coming up. So you want to be looking for this, just a remarkable document. And uh, he was a lot of things, you know, his private life, the way he conducted himself with women, what were, you know, it's all in the here, but it's also, he did the great dictator. I mean, there's, it's, He's a complex character, so, and you've managed to capture it all. So thank you so much. Again, the film, The Real Charlie Chaplin, we've been speaking with Peter Middleton and James Spinney. Thank you so much. Come back anytime. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, yeah. Mike. Thank you. The real pleasure. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music